number two <clears throat> is underway. We uh, decided to uh, push past the uh, President Reagan intro because we got a little bit behind there. So uh, don't think you're not going to hear that anymore. I know that brings a lot of inspiration and a lot of comfort to a lot of people. So we'll continue that, but just not this hour. Uh, it is the uh, Monday, the fourth morning of the fifth month of the year of our Lord, 2020. I'm going to hit a few other points here, and then I'm going to go to some phone calls. As we talk about the state of Ohio, which continues to be on lockdown, no matter what Mike DeWine tried to say, that it wasn't on Friday. He's a liar. Amy Acton, who's uh, got his um, authority, essentially, because he appointed her to do whatever she wants, has said the lockdown continues until May 29th. He can come out and sugarcoat it all he wants and say, no, it's not really. Uh, Well, as long as there is a threat of $750 fine and 90 days in jail on it, yes, it really is. I want you to pivot now for just a moment to some of what the... um, one of the biggest arguments or one of the biggest talking points, one of the biggest dis- uh, um, uh, issues of disagreement in our state right now is, and that is the requirement of masks. Somebody who called the show just a short while ago asked me about that. Do you have to wear them or do you not? And the answer is, well, it depends. It depends on where you're going. And the reason why is because Governor DeWine, like almost everything else he has touched as it pertains to this, fumbled it and bumbled it and stumbled it and screwed it up. I want to play for you a little video that was put out by, I believe, Representative Nito Vitale, uh, who is a conservative Republican in practice, not in language or in title the way Mike DeWine is. And we had him on the program last week. About the issue of masks, what you're going to hear is Dr. Amy Labcoat. You're going to hear Governor DeWine and Representative Vitale in this 90-second video about wearing masks. And I want you to look for consistency here. And the reason I say that is because you will be looking for a very long time. You will find none. Listen. So I presented the idea of universal was the word I was using, masking. It's really about behavior change and culture change. So when I've traveled globally, again, as a global health professor in other cultures, this is the norm. But we have to get there together as a culture. We have to. This is a very big behavioral change for us. Eventually, in our culture, perhaps wearing masks, that might eventually be a culture change we get to. Um, I see it this way. This is the beginning of that social contract with each other. Um, So this is something we're going to lean into very heavily. We're going to have lots of campaigns about it, and we're going to reach as many people. Join me in this. Don your mask. Don your cape. Masks in public. The governor of Ohio also reversing his mandatory no mask, no service policy. It became clear to me that that was just a bridge too far. People were were not going to accept the government telling them what to do. Uh, And so we put out, you know, dozens and dozens of orders. Uh, That was one that it just went too far. When, when we think about the image and likeness of God, that we're created in the image and likeness of God, when we think of image, do we think of a chest or our legs or our arms? We think of their face. I don't want to cover people's faces, Jim. That's the image of God right there. And I- that Okay, so in order, what you heard was Dr. Amy Acton essentially saying, don't use masks. This is in early April. Don't use masks. They won't stop the spread. Let's just uh, behavioral change. Then, in late April, it was Dr. Amy Acton saying, mandate masks, you're going to need to wear these, you're going to have to put on your mask, put on your cape, as if you're a superhero for wearing the mask. Then you had Mike DeWine saying, everybody must wear the mask, and then saying, okay, it was a bridge too far, people said, yeah, we're not going to stand for that. And then at the end, you heard from um, Nino Vitale. 
again, just kind of speaking to the insanity of the entire thing, forcing people to cover their faces. Um, and by the way, this is one of the most hilarious things that I've seen. When we were grocery shopping the other day, I told you about this on uh, blah, 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 Saturday. My wife and I noticed, and I won't mention the store, there was a sign, and it made sense. There was a sign at the register that said, if you are wearing a mask, because this was not a mask requirement store, that's the reason I was there. If you are wearing a face covering or mask, we will ask you to remove it or pull it down so that we can identify. Uh, in, oh, I'm sorry, this is and if you are uh, purchasing alcohol as part of your transaction so that we can identify your uh, identi- your you know, uh, marry you or match you, your face to your ID card. So I found that hilarious. Um, mask up, and by the way, pull the masks down, thereby exposing yourself to whatever germs may indeed be in the air. It is just pointless. You, you cannot mask yourself going into banks. You cannot mask yourself uh, uh, while you're driving and then have a police officer who pulls you over not be able to see your face. I mean, all of these things, the mask, the fear, I call them fear masks. The fear masks are one of the biggest issues and one of the biggest points of, of disagreement and contention in this state and in this country right now. And I just want to say this about that because I've talked about it at some length. If you believe that they are asking you to wear a mask now or mandating that you will wear a mask now for health reasons, then you really, really need to have your head examined. And the reason I say that is this. If masks were the answer to protecting people from the virus, then they would have been the answer back in February and in March. The health professionals that are telling you to wear them now, but didn't tell you to wear them then, well, I would suggest that these are people you cannot trust. If they matter now that the virus is on the wane, if they matter now that, that more and more uh, 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 proof is out there that this is nowhere near as deadly as they thought it was, if they think it matters now, then why didn't they mandate this back when the whole thing first started? There's a virus in the air. It's airborne. It's easily transmissible between humans, human-to-human contact. Wear a mask. Try to, try to cut down on your opportunity to be infected and your opportunity to spread infection to other people. Everybody must, man, must wear masks. But they didn't do that in February. And they didn't do that in March. They didn't do that until starting to recommend it in early April and now mandating it in late April and now in early May. If this was such a life-saving technique and so extraordinarily important to fighting coronavirus, then it would have been from the start. The fact that they're doing it now has nothing to do with health. It has everything to do with fear, ramping up the fear. And I have talked to people that you would not believe, I'm telling you, who are terrified because they see all of these masks and they're afraid to breathe. There are people with high anxiety, my friends. They might not be reasonable and common sensible people like you. Or maybe they are reasonable and common sensible, but they still just have high, have high anxiety. And they see these things, and it triggers something in them, and it makes them afraid to leave their houses because everybody out there has these masks on because they're afraid to breathe the air. The air must be poisonous, toxic, deadly. I can't do that. I'm not making that up. I'm telling you, there are many, many people like that. This is about control. This is about fear. This is not about health. If it was about health, they would have started it, mandating it at the start of this health crisis. They did not. Fred is in Cleveland on AM 1420, The Answer. Fred, thanks for your patience. Go ahead. 
Hi, Bob. A little disappointed in the urgency or the lack of urgency and uh, uh, what's his name's part, who you interviewed a minute ago, uh, Jordan. Um, I think it could he could have been a little more urgent uh, in his uh, responses, but I also think that uh, DeWine should be recalled. Uh, why we don't have we, we don't have, have a recall. We don't have recall in the state of Ohio. I looked it up. Trust me, that's one of the first things I thought of too. We have no recall power. The only way to remove a sitting governor is through impeachment at the um, legislative level. Oh, geez, I wish I knew that. Oh, <laughs> believe me, I, that's the first thing <laughs> I thought of. For, Can we recall this guy? Up. Yeah, yeah. We don't. We yeah, it's not a, it's not a provision. This has been this has been bad since from the beginning. Mike Twine is out of his league. He has no clue. He is not a leader. I mean, if he wasn't a Republican, none of us would have supported him a couple years ago. He needs to go, and I think William Barr needs to step up what he's doing. I mean, what good is a memo? You know, these threats that uh, Jordan said Barr has put out. Who's listening? You know what I mean? These liberal governors are laughing at William Barr. Well, that's they're, they're, I don't know if they're laughing at him, but they're not afraid of him. You're right. They're not afraid of him. And, and see, here's the thing. And, and when you talk about Jordan, th- and Fred, thanks for the call. I'm going to move on. When you, when you talk about, uh, the federal officials, like whether it be the AG, USAG, or, or a congressman like Jordan, they have to be respectful of states' rights. And that's the thing. You know, they can't just come, you know, waltzing into the governor's mansion, you know, hey, I'm from the federal government. You need to stop this now. It doesn't work that way. It, it, I, I, sometimes I wish it does, would. Sometimes I don't, because states' rights are very, very important. You just have to hope that your state is being led by the right people. Uh, but they can't just come in and wield this big hammer and say, this is what you must do. That would be a violation of the, of, of the law. And there is a separation uh, of powers between federal government authority and states' rights. And so that's the hard thing. And I know Jordan is walking a fine line there. I'm sure he would love to just be able to go in and say, here's what we say you should do, Governor DeWine. But that's just not the way that it works. And William Barr has got to also kind of walk this up a particular pace. I think what might be a little bit more powerful to be honest with you, though, is using the courts. And there has been one lawsuit filed in Ohio that I'm aware of against Mike DeWine and the state government for shutting down businesses like this from a bridal shop or a wedding shop or whatever you want to call it in Columbus. And the attorneys representing that bridal shop uh, are looking for other plaintiffs to join in a massive class action lawsuit against the state of Ohio. And the faster we can get that to happen, to realize, to let the uh, state of Ohio realize they're going to have to answer to this, and it could cost them a lot of money, maybe that. I'm not saying it would go to trial, but maybe just the pressure and the threat of that much law, of a loss of, uh, of income on, or of uh, money from the state standpoint might be something to light a little fire under Mike DeWine's behind. So that's something else we can talk about. Federal pressure is part of it, but I think a lot of it is going to have to come from other places. 1022, back after this. A little sad note to report here just came across my screen. Uh, Don Shula, the legendary Don Shula. Um, one of the greatest coaches in uh, NFL history, has passed away at the age of 90. One of uh, uh, Shula's children told the um, told a newspaper, I'm not sure which one, that, um, uh, that Mr. Shula has died. He was known for leading the Dolphins to an undefeated record in 1972. When he retired, he had the most ever coaching wins in the NFL. 
And uh, he is, of course, a John Carroll graduate, so a local legend as well as a national treasure in the world of football, and that is Don Shula has passed away at age 90, so sad news there. Okay, to the phones, Diane in West Park on AM 1420, The Answer. Hi, Diane, go ahead. Good morning, Bob. Thank you. Um, you, Well, your last statement before the break uh, answered my question about whether the courts could get involved and whether business owners were uh, filing lawsuits. So that's they great are. to hear. I'm yeah, sorry? they are. And, and, and again, it'll be a slow process to try to get this thing to a trial because, you know, again, every day that goes by, we're, we're suffering. But the idea is here, if we can get enough businesses to join that lawsuit or to file other lawsuits and the state of Ohio realizes how much they could be on the hook for if they even fight, take this thing to trial, then maybe it'll kind of uh, speed up the process of getting things open so that they can, uh, you know, so that they can limit their own liability. Yes, and may I make another uh, point, Bob? Sure, sure. Something else that really needs to be on the radar screen right now and something done about it is this mail-in ballot push that we've had. I sure don't want to see that. I'm sure nobody, uh, we don't want to see it uh, be happening uh, come November. It's going to be terrible if Governor Devine uh, issues an edict that we're going to all be doing vote by mail. Yeah, I agree. I agree wholeheartedly. And it is on the radar. Thank you for the call, Diane. Uh, It is on the radar. There are a lot of people fighting and and, and kicking and, and scratching and clawing and trying to make sure that everything is done to stop any kind of because this is what Nancy Pelosi wants. This is what Hillary Clinton wants, and I know she's not. She's just still running at the mouth. This is what all liberal Democrats want: is vote by mail because it will be so much easier for them to manipulate the vote and commit voter fraud than it is with in person. They already do it very well with in person voting, but mail uh, mail in voting is uh, is simply a non-starter. It absolutely cannot happen. There are a lot of people working very hard, like I said, fighting and scratching and clawing to make sure that our vote is protected, uh, and that is uh, that. Means means no mail-in voting. Bob in Strongsville next. Hi, Bob. Go ahead. Hi, Bob. First of all, I, I just liked your opening where you mimic the wine slow pace. I'd like to see you do that each day. With that in mind, though, I'm going to think of the school's opening in the fall, and I know he will slow walk that again. So I'm asking now if maybe the schools, each school district or each independent school, start working on their plans for social distancing now while their teachers and administrators are now in session. That way they won't be caught off guard when DeWine or Dr. Amy asks them to do something in late August. And again, the state school board I, I has the power. Are. I would be really surprised, to be honest with you, my friend, if they're not, that uh, superintendents, school boards, uh, administrators, and so on and so forth are probably already putting everything in place because they, uh, and, and thank you for the call, i got to get out, um, they, they, they are aware of what Mike DeWine is and who he is and what he is doing. And, you know, it's funny that you mentioned that because yesterday on the Fox News Town Hall that uh, President Trump did, <clears throat> He was asked about schools and the importance of getting kids back into physical schools and being kids and, and, and living their lives uh, the way they're supposed to, as opposed to trying to learn by laptop, which is not possible for so many of them. And the president is on board. Uh, and again, it's the same thing. Federal government can't just come into the states and say you must do A, B, C, D, and E when it comes to your schools or anything else. Uh, but that kind of pressure, I think, can carry a lot of weight, especially if the people of a given state, if 
nine million Ohioans follow the president's lead and put pressure on Mike DeWine to open our schools and allow our kids to be kids again and allow education to happen and to stop living in fear the way that uh, we have been. I think it would it could go a very long way. Bob, I thank you for that great point. It's ten thirty news time now in fourteen twenty. The answer. Ten thirty-seven. Now we continue on AM fourteen twenty. The answer. I want to step away from the coronavirus fight for a moment and the uh, nonsense going on in our state, the destruction of our state economy, uh, the lies of our governor. I want to step away from that and I want to go back and do a little history now. May fourth, nineteen seventy, is a uh, monumental day in American history for obviously all of the wrong kinds of reasons. A sad and tragic day in which four Kent State University students were shot. Uh, during a Vietnam War protest by the Ohio National Guard. Uh, 28 guardsmen fired approximately 67 rounds over a period of 13 seconds. Four were killed, nine others were wounded, uh, one of whom sur- uh, suffered a permanent paralysis. It's obviously a, a benchmark day in the country and in the state as well. Uh, it's, of course, something we want to learn from because it's something we can never allow to happen again. And there are a lot of protests. There will continue to be protests as injustice is done in our country, and a lot of people want to have their say. Peaceable assembly, of course, is protected by our First Amendment. And sometimes things get out of control. Sometimes things get out of hand. Sometimes things need to be brought back under control, and sometimes that might involve law enforcement personnel, maybe even military personnel. But this is the kind of thing that cannot happen again. And what's the old adage? Those who forget their history are condemned to repeat it. We're not going to forget it. We're going to talk about it. Right now, we're going to talk about it with somebody who was there on the campus of Kent State University, May 4th, 1970. It was a monumental time for him. As a matter of fact, so much so, much so that Peter Jettick wrote a book uh, about his time at Kent State University called Hippies, a Kent State love story. And Peter Jettick joins us now on AM 1420, The Answer. Hey, Pete, how are you? Hey, Bob. Thanks for having me. How are you doing? It's good to have you, Peter. It's uh, great to have kind of a, a bit of a first-hand account, if you will, of this incredible um, uh, experience in the, uh, you know, in the modern American history. Uh, you were there. Can I, before we talk about the day, May 4th, 1970, as we look back 50 years, um, talk to me about the lead-up. You were on the campus. You know that it was, you know, a, a fairly liberal campus back then, as much as it is now. Maybe even that's an understatement. Uh, anti-war protesters uh, were, were, you know, a popular theme on a lot of campuses, not just Kent State University. But um, was there an indication to you, any indication, uh, Peter, when you were on that campus in the days and weeks leading up to what would be that fateful day, that things were getting out of control? Uh, no, really, uh, it wasn't really a liberal campus. It was considered a conservative campus because it was even a commuter campus at the time. A lot of kids, blue-collar kids from Cleveland and Akron and Youngstown would drive into Kent. And there's only a small group of really student protesters. But we all got branded as protesters. Anybody had long hair and a beard like me? I was a spectator at the time. and uh, but The whole generation gap was going on then, and the parents were mad at us. Uh, because we were against the war, and they were World War II vets. You know, they went and did their duty, and they thought we should do our duty. But Vietnam was a different mm-hmm. war, and uh, the truth was coming out about Vietnam uh, that you know it wasn't really a, a very smart move uh, for foreign policy move for us. And my friends were getting killed over there from high school, and I was fortunate that I went to college and I had a four-year deferment. But what was leading up to it was that, uh, as you know, 
Um, Nixon gave a speech on Thursday night, um, April 30th, and uh, that's what set it off. He said he's going to invade Cambodia, and we elected Nixon to end the war because he said he was going to end the war. And what happened after that is all just kind of build up. If you want me to get into detail, I can get into detail of how, you know, every well, day it kind of builds up to May 4th. Yeah, well, they, they, what I really wanted to talk about, again, so you're, you're describing the campus as not being overly liberal, but it was kind of, you know, the anti-war protesters, like you said, the long-haired Jesus freaks, as they were known, you know, looking back at the summer of 69, looking back at really the, all of the late 60s as the, you know, kind of the flower child movement began to really kind of take root, and it spread to a lot of college campuses. Uh, I was a child. I was literally, you know, three years old when all of this went down. Uh-huh. So, uh, but but when you, when you look at the... Um, atmosphere the political atmosphere and the cultural atmosphere of the time the counterculture movement seemed to be on all kinds of campuses but you're saying it wasn't particularly widespread on the kent campus right oh no it wasn't no it was, kent was considered a very conservative campus and that made the student protesters i knew a lot of those guys the radical they made they were mad they said we gotta get people against this war we gotta fire them up you know and uh that's that's what happened you know after the nixon made that speech a couple of them went downtown and started some problems and broke some windows and uh, that got the mayor uh, uh, scared, so he calls Governor Rhodes, and Governor Rhodes calls in the National Guard. And it starts escalating, you know. And the Guard, those guys were the same age as us. And they were kind of scared. Sure. And, uh, sure. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I'm sure they were scared, too. You know, they don't want <laughs> you know, that's one of the things. And you talk about National Guardsmen in particular, too. But, but yeah, and even, you know, the, the Marines and the Army, and the, you know, all of these people were drafted to go to war and to go to serve, actually, in Vietnam. You know, so many of them were, were young, college-age kids. So you're right. You've got, you got Guardsmen being called in to try, to try to keep the peace and to make sure that a protest doesn't get too out of control and that violence isn't done. And, you know, you're asking a lot of young kids to make decisions that you probably don't want to ask a lot of young kids to have to make, especially when it comes to lethal force but that's where we were so tell me about the day uh uh Pete, tell me where you were in relation to the uh uh to the, you know the protest and and where you were when everything happened and what what was going through your mind as you learned of everything that was going on well what happened is they had this a uh, protest planned for monday uh, may 4th at noon mm-hmm. uh the, you know the radicals that set that up but uh, the National Guard came in the night before because they, were, they burned down the ROTC building, which caused a lot of trouble. And the National Guard took over and said, this is our campus now. But the kids didn't get the memo, you know. They didn't have the Internet. Nobody knew that, you know. We thought we have a right to assemble, and the National Guard said, no, you don't. We own the campus now. And it was kind of weird. I went, to cl- I went that morning to classes, and there was a tank sitting in front of the library, you know. It was crazy. Everything leading up to it was crazy. So May 4th, I'm standing there watching the protest, and there were, you know, only a small group of really uh, protesters, maybe 30 or 40, and then a bunch of kids jumped in to help them because they just wanted to help out. But you had a couple thousand kids, like, standing around watching them, and that was the, that was the difference. You know, most of the kids were pro- that were protesters were, were watching spectators, but they were considered protesters. So the National Guard drove through the, these protesters, and I'm watching, and it was called the Commons. It was the flat part of campus. Right. And said, you got to leave. You know, we, we, you got to leave. This is a legal assembly. The kid said, no, it's not. And actually, my one friend said the wind was a big factor. So they threw nasty, they shot tear gas at the kids, but the, the wind was blowing it back in the face of the guards. So that got them angry. And the kids threw the, the tear gas back at the kids. And the National Guard looked like they were losing this protest, you know. 
but it should have been all over. You know, everybody thought, well, you know, we did our part, we protested, they shot, they did their part, they broke up the protest. But a small group of them went over the top of the hill, and luckily, uh, looking back, luckily I didn't see the exact killing because it would have it marked me for life. I would have probably had uh, post-traumatic stress syndrome or something. But a uh, small group of them got mad, and they, somebody gave an order. This never came out why they actually shot the small group of guardsmen. They kind of broke off from the other ones. And they all turned and fired at the same time, 13 seconds. You don't all turn and fire within 13 seconds without planning it, you know. So I think uh, their boss got mad. We're not putting up with these protests. Wait, 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 wait. wait. You, you, hold on, Pete. I want to make sure I understand. Yeah, you, think, you think that the guardsmen went in there with plans to shoot No, no students? At, the, at the time, on the, on the field it happened, you know. Because they had a little skirmish earlier where they, they pointed their guns and they didn't fire. And I think the, well, yeah, that's boss, obviously well, that. Yeah, I mean, the the presence, of course, of weapons would be to to deter anybody from from doing anything violent. You know, if you do anything right. violent, you're going to get hurt. So certainly, that's why you would point the guns. Uh, but when you just said they fired uh, all of those rounds in 13 seconds, you don't do that without planning. I I, I guess I don't quite understand what you mean. It would I think seem that to me they, like got, it was they almost, kind of had like a huddle and they said, "We're going to teach these students." You know, the students weren't smart either. They're giving them the finger, and he didn't really throw a lot of rocks. People say he throwing rocks. But they were swearing at him and giving him the finger and stuff. And I think they just kind of said, we're not taking this anymore, you know. They'd been taking it all weekend. And they decided to, and the guy gave an order to, to fire. I think that, that it kind of came out that they figured out this order, but it's never been proven, you know. But uh, So they all fired at the same time. And, you know, and this real sad part is, like my one friend got killed, Sandy Schroyer. She was walking to class. She was a great girl. She wasn't protesting. She wasn't even watching the protest. She was walking to class, and she got killed. I mean, that's they're trying to explain that to your parents, you know, and they killed four kids and wounded nine, so it really got out of hand. It was uh, obviously shocking is a too, bit of a, too much of an understatement, um, you know, to see that this had happened on a college campus, but... Can you can you try to describe the mood, not just the rest of May fourth, but did you stay on campus? Because again, I don't know the history here too much. Did they did they clear the campus after that? Did they send everybody home? What happened the next day on Tuesday? What happened in the next few days uh, because of the you know the stunning turn of events there? Oh, it all happened the same day. Actually, the word went out fast. I mean, it was an international event. I had a girlfriend in Switzerland. She saw it on TV right when it happened. A few minutes later, it went all over the world. It was big, and the whole colleges all across the country started rioting. It was kind of like today. They closed Kent right away. They closed colleges all across That's the country. That's what I mean. They, so, so they closed it right away. And, and so, like, was it was the campus ordered to be deserted? Did they send students home? Oh, yeah, that was a real uh, cluster because everybody trying to get home. I tried to call home, and here's, here's the crazy thing. You know, they didn't have cell phones. You had to use their landline or the pay phone. You had to go to back to your apartment. Sure. The whole phone system crashed in Kent wow. because so many people were trying to call. So you couldn't even call, but then all the parents are trying to come back. There's a million stories about, like, my dad had to go through the National Guard to get to pick us up, you know, and everybody had their own stories about how they got back, and some people jumped in with their friends and just to get out of town, you know. It how, was many really days, how many days, Pete, was the uh, campus closed? Oh, the rest of the semester. It was fun. It was just like today. That's the, the one so, familiar so, what went on then with the what went on today. Yeah, I guess given the timing at the end of a semester, it would make sense for it to be like that. So, uh, did you go back then in the fall? Oh yeah. Tell me, fall, tell me what was different. different. Tell me what was different, if anything, uh, in oh, the fall when you returned. Then, you know, and Kent, and Kent, Kent now it had a national reputation. Before that, nobody knew where Kent. Kent was like the largest school in Ohio nobody ever heard of. You know, and 
was the second largest school next to Ohio State, but nobody knew it was there. Now it has a big reputation. Yeah. And it lost a lot of kids. A lot of, you know, they couldn't recruit for about 10 years. They couldn't get kids to go there because, you know, hey, I'm not sending my kid to Kent where he might get killed, you know. Well, and, but, uh, but as you pointed out, too, well. as you pointed out, though, there were riots or protests that some became violent on campuses all over the country as a result of what happened, of the shootings uh, themselves, um, which, of course, is, you know, not not to speak specifically on Kent. Uh, it happened at Kent, but I mean, the fact that people rioted in support or in solidarity, if you will, or, or protested in solidarity with those who were shot on campuses all over the country, uh, you know, I'm actually surprised. Are you surprised, Peter, that, um, that there weren't kind of repeats of this in other places? Oh, yeah, that's what they thought. You know, there, the protests were going on before Kent, too, that same thing. It was all over the country. It was not just Kent wasn't the, the only one that was having it. Ohio State had worst riots, not worst riots that May 4th weekend after Cambodia. Cambodia. Nixon made a big mistake on that Cambodia thing. He set off the whole country. He set fire to the anti-war movement, which was kind of protested anyway, you know. Oh, yeah, I mean, of course it was. I mean, even before Nick, when Johnson was, was, you know, making the decisions, I mean, college campuses were filled with protesters all over the all over the country. You know, especially a lot of places like Berkeley and some of the traditional liberal hotspots, if you will. The anti-war protests were, were, were numerous all over the country. Uh, this particular one, and I guess that's my point, because there were so many of them, and so many of them were, let's just say, less than peaceful, uh, in many circumstances, uh, I'm surprised there weren't more confrontations with law enforcement and or military in order to try to keep the peace and to stop things from being burned or destroyed or whatnot around the country. Oh, yeah, that's that's amazing. It's just weird that it happened again. It was bound to happen somewhere. Yeah. It's just real strange and real sad that it happened right here in northeast Ohio. But here's another point that maybe your conservative uh, uh, viewers would like to hear uh, that people don't talk about. You know, I think... Because of Cambodia and and, uh, and Kent State and Nixon's mistake there, it became Nixon's war. Before that, it was really Johnson's war. You know, people don't realize that actually, this is a terrible war that uh, John F. Kennedy started it, and and uh, Lyndon Johnson was the one to send most of the kids over there. And my my friends from high school were getting killed for nothing. It was a really you know a bad war. And and my freshman year, when when Johnson said he wasn't going to run for reelection, our whole dorm was cheering. But yeah. They hated Johnson for that. Oh yeah, you know? yeah, they did. But then after, students... but after May fourth, it became Nixon's war and Republicans' war. It changed everything. Yeah, well, you're right. I mean, and I think it was just it was the war. You know, it really didn't matter. I don't think the party mattered. You know, to to the. Uh, to the counterculture, you know, students, the 19, 20, 21 year olds of that day. And again, I'm looking at it from history's lens because I was a child. I didn't experience it the way you did. But, but looking at it, it was no matter who was in charge, if they didn't end that war or, or withdraw immediately, uh, they were going to own it and the, uh, the counterculture was going to hold them accountable for it. So they did. They held uh, Johnson accountable and then they held Nixon accountable. There's no doubt about it. I think it kind of transcended uh, po- party politics and it was really more of, of, you know, the peaceniks versus those who believed we needed to stop communism from spreading at all costs and that of course has been argued for 50 years the wisdom of going into vietnam or not and it will probably continue to be argued for another 50 after this but today is the 50th uh, anniversary of the terrible tragic shooting of the students uh on the kent state campus may 4th 1970 peter jettick was there and uh peter pete loves uh, recounting his times at kent state again he's got a book uh pete right hippies uh a kent state love story where can people get that book Oh, it's on Amazon, or they can go to my website, hippiesbook.com. And, you know, I try to make it entertaining, because people don't want to hear dry, uh, dry history. Most people don't want to read that. So I, it's about my, most of what, a lot of what 
I saw, and I tried to make it a love story. These, they're trying to have a relationship while all this craziness is going on for the whole year leading up to Kent State. Up to, well, you know, you're right, because there's a lot of places to get just the dry, sanitized, you know, facts about what happened there, and uh, to try to tell a story and weave a story around it is a, is a great idea. So that's online at hippiesbook.com. Peter Jedick is the author. Peter Jedick was on the campus during the uh, tragedy. Pete, thanks for recounting everything with us. We certainly appreciate it. Okay, Bob, you keep the faith. Thank you, sir. Stay safe. Thank you, and you as well. 1053, right back after this. Ten fifty six. Our final segment is almost always a very short one. This is no different, but let's squeeze a call or two in uh, before the top of the hour. And Mike Gallagher takes over. Dan is in Middleburg Heights on AM fourteen twenty. The answer. Hi, Dan. Go ahead. Uh, good morning. <clears throat> it's interesting. Morning. Uh, you you uh, mentioned you, you had your Kent State segment here, uh, uh, along with the coronavirus situation, mm-hmm. and I like to tie it together. Uh, I believe it's a both the Vietnam War. Uh, the, uh, and uh, this coronavirus is a, a fraud in general in the big picture on the whole uh, uh, American citizens. Uh, I remember back when John Kennedy was killed, if you recall, they took him out of Texas, his body, illegally, and took it back to Washington. And I remember they said if you control the medical examiner, you control the case. So now here we're sitting here in 2020, and we have medical scientists like Amy Acton and politicians like DeWine, which you've, you've been very well exposing their fraud, you look at the whole America, you go down from, go down from governors to counties to, to cities, and everybody lockstep is like watching CNN and MSNBC with the same talking points. And they don't have the facts to support this virus, but it's all about taking down the economy, which nobody would do this kind of policy. Nowhere, no sane person. Well, there's, I'll tell you this, Dan, you know, you're right about Thanks for the call. You're right about this. The trust factor of all of these elected officials is at an all-time low. I understand your point about the trust factor back then, and yes, right now. I can't trust Mike DeWine. I certainly don't trust Amy Acton. I don't trust any of them because they're lying to us on a regular basis. And now we find out the CDC was lying to us, too, about death counts. It's just irresponsible. doesn't even begin to describe it. Frank and Brooke Park. Go ahead, Frank. You're on the air. Thanks. Uh, Amy Acton is active issuing permits for abortion clinics. In Dayton, there was an abortionist who had been closed down since 2014. He fought in the courts. He was turned down twice in appealing to get his license back. And Amy Atkins stepped in within two days of when he had got his second uh, turn down by the Ohio Supreme Court. She gave him a, an abortion clinic operating license. Yeah, yeah. She well, she's notorious. She's very. She and Frank, thanks for the call. I've got to go. She's very well known as being a pro-abortion, pro-planned parenthood, liberal, democratic, Barack Obama supporting uh, uh, politician masquerading as a physician. She's been well known as that. How she got Mike DeWine to appoint her director of the Department of Health in the state of Ohio is a mystery that I'll never understand. But it also reminds me of why I'll never trust or vote for Mike DeWine again. That's all the time we've got. Mike Gallagher's next. Have a safe day. Bye-bye.